Ladies and gentlemen, I just saw the Barking of the Century. Brand new pressings of Quincy Jones. Eight albums in a big ass collection for three hundred pound. Anybody want a lash? In other words, public enemies Chuck D, bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Yeah, man, I just, I just, the past couple of days, I've just been seeing stuff that really just, really just goes for me. Like, really just aim for me. I'm just like, oh, man, it feels, it feels, I don't know, it feels like in a couple of weeks or something like that, you know what I mean? I'll be just, if it wasn't this month, if it wasn't this month, oh my gosh, the story would be so, so different, honestly. Yeah, shout out to Vitamin B, please, on that anthology, man. That, that boy looks clean. It looks so freaking clean. And, you know, I, th- I feel like people would see, you know, me potentially paying, forking out 300 quid. That's converted, by the way, it's $380, so converts like 300 around 300 quid um and i'm actually rounding up uh you know if, if, if people see that and they're like whoa you mad <laughs> you going through laddie or what like but 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 think about it right it's, it's eight albums okay right and they're all you know uh freshly fresh masters right some uh, like two of them uh Highly, uh, I forget, I forget, I forget the term. But the six of the eight are AAA mastered, um, and uh, the other two, I think, are, I don't know, I think it said like digital mastering or something like that, high quality digital mastering. Don't take my, don't just don't take my knowledge for, the, don't take my knowledge as gospel on that front. Um, but yeah, they're just high quality, right? Um, brand like, and they're all housed in this little, in this big ass box, and they have liner notes for every every. Uh, Every album, there's eight albums, right? They're all coloured vinyl, all special, right? All, all, you know, just love the love and care put into the anthology looks so freaking tasty, man. It seems to worth the price of admission for me, right? And again, you may think three hundred quid for a for a collection of Quincy Jones albums is too much, but do the math, ladies and gentlemen. Do the math. I'm not even talking about the the housing, the packaging. Right, which was like designed from like by a freaking Grammy award-winning uh, designer or something. Right, take that out. Take the take the podcast that they created especially for the whole anthology, where you can listen to it and uh, and uh, you, you get like a full, you know, just front to back like uh, 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 just talk i guess about every album just like you know you just know here's everything about the yeah everything you should know about the album kind of thing right and on top of that you get three month subscription to quincy jones's freaking streaming service did you know quincy jones have a streaming service you do now right so there you go that but all that aside all that aside let's just talk about the vinyl okay right so you got eight vinyl that's 300 quid get the calculator out go on go on go on hop hop on your calculator right now do with me 300 divided by 8. What do you get? I get 37.5. You're telling me I can get 8 Quincy Joe's albums. 
Again, with all of the good stuff, all the trimmings aside, you're telling me I get eight brand new pressings, limited or I think a thousand, of Quincy Jones albums for 37.5 quid. Book it. Book it. Book it, mate. It's happening. It has to happen. It has to happen. Someday I'm getting that. I don't know what day. Hopefully they have it some... Hopefully they just... I don't know. I just hope they just repress it someday or something like that. Or just have some chilling lying around. Hopefully. I just hope there's a there's some chance I can get that. Because, man, Quincy Jones, straight goat, man. Goat, 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 goat. Oh, I can't. Oh, what a day. And also, another side note... Steve McQueen is hosting like a three-day, I think two or three-day, like mini, uh, like a Q and A slash watching session of Small X. So you watch Mangrove Q and A, Lovers Rock Q and A. There's actual Lovers Rock party as part of the whole thing. So you go straight after that till two a.m. Right, and the next day you're watching uh uh, uh black uh, uh red white and blue I think it's called I forget the the police one right with John Boyega. Q&A, Alex Wheatle, Q&A, Education, Q&A, like, that's, do you understand how, the amount of knowledge you can get out of all of that, and you're just watching five fucking brilliant films, <sighs> why am I busy, I don't want to be busy right now man, I, just, I, just, I need 300 quid, and a free weekend, <laughs> that's exactly what I need right now, but here we are, it's life for you, anyway, one of everything for this episode, Let's jump right in, but before we begin, formalities before we begin. Email to IG, just got a link, all that, all that, all that in the full show notes. Please go peep the articles for yourself, give them a read, and help and support the writers that make this show possible. But with that said, let the beat drop, and let's get into the show. In a week where my local MP, Sir David Amos, is stamped to death, I'm not lying, it's literally my local MP, um, died literally like 15 minutes away from me, 15 minute walk away from me, uh, he basically died where I vote, and, um, yeah man, that's, it was, it was crazy, it was a crazy couple of days just thinking about that, um, I was working, got that news, I was like, what, date, uh, my David Amos, the, the MP David Amos? Um, so yeah, that was, um, that made, I think, worldwide news, you know what I mean? I I feel like a lot of international places talked about it, as it pertains to, like, obviously, British politics, if they lean to that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so, um, it's been, it's been interesting, uh, discourse, uh, for sure, but, um, let's be real, it's gonna go back to normal at some point. Um, and also South End City now, so, yay, big ups. Uh, DC, the comic. Form, well, obviously comic mainly, but other stuff as well. Are back here with a new slate of movies. Um, I'm just, I'm just wondering, guys. Um, did, will will Batman ever have a uh, a color palette that is not a dark shade of red and black? Who knows? We shall see. Um, Matt Hancock loses his UN position in a big statement of the world healing. Glorious. Uh, stop talking about the damn Salt Bay restaurant. Honestly, the amount of the amount of headlines I've seen about the Salt Bay restaurant is starting to piss me off, guys. Yes, we get it. The steaks are thirty grand. All right, we get it. We really get it. 
There was there was one where some guy didn't know the bill was going to be that much. Are you... F- stop. Just stop. Stop. I, I'm sick of it. Just stop doing these bullshit headlines. Like, there was one... It was, you know, they did... Uh, I think it was the Sunday Times or whatever. You know, they did an interview with him or Telegraph, maybe. Um, they, they did an interview with him. That's fine, right? But all these other articles, man. We get it. It costs a lot. We've done this for years already. We've done this for years. Everyone's seen the... Everyone's seen certain bills of... Oh, the, oh look, Tomahawk steak costs 20,000 crowns. Like, we get it. We get it. Stop it. Just leave it alone, man. If you can't afford it, you can't afford it. It's fine. Gold flake... Go, edible gold leaf costs like five quid on Amazon anyways. Don't worry about it. It's fine. And lastly, the top ten UK baby names drop. And Charlie is out of the top ten for the first time since 2005. A moment of silence, ladies and gentlemen. I'm joking, obviously, but the Charlies will return. The Charlie Coalition will return. Okay, just uh, to, and and whoever whoever's the um and it was over the past year, by the way, in terms of like ranking up the baby names, tossing the numbers up. But seriously, guys, how Im- unimaginative are you to name your kid one after one of the royal babies? Come on, man. Think think for yourself. You seriously you name you naming your kid George Archie? Come on, come on. Sort yourself out. Sort yourself out. Um, but yeah, the Ch- the Charlie Coalition uh, will uh, convene, and we shall return to the top ten uh, in post haste. How about that said? Let's jump in right to our first topic, which is I forget is this one? It's <laughs> it's about Netflix. So yeah, um, obviously recently, um, as Paz, oh, if you if I don't know if you guys know, but this show called Squid Game is relatively popular. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's the most popular show out right now. Um, it's the most watched show on Netflix, period, um, in history, uh, which is uh, fun, I guess. A fun little stat to know. I love how Netflix always posts, like, the fun stats, you know what I mean? Just like, oh, guys, look, this is the most uh, watched show ever. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, so how many, uh, how many, uh, how much money do you get? Oh, 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 oh you suddenly silent. Um, and this this is even like the most popular Netflix thing to talk about. I could easily be talking about the fact that they walked out today in response of the Dave Chappelle uh, Dave Chappelle uh, stand up, which I did not mention last week, and I mentioned I meant to. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so there's that. But um, I, I prefer this. That's <laughs> just a, just just a, because it's 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 interesting because this particular show, obviously, so uh, South Korean export. So, obviously, for most people, you're watching it with subtitles on, right? Unless you're very fluent in Korean, right? Um, I am not one of those people. Um, I haven't seen Squid Game, and it's for this exact reason which I'm about to get into. Um, Netflix has been bottling translations, and uh, I feel like this isn't the only... If they're doing it for Squid Game, they're probably doing it for every single thing that they subtitle, um, and that makes me uneasy. Um, I While this may not be you know, a deal-breaker issue for a lot of you... Um, it is for me because I feel if you're watching a film of that not film if you're watching a film or a TV show of that nature where it's foreign right it, imagine this right imagine you're imagine you're watching a show in English right imagine you're speaking English uh, you know some some of the listeners might not be speaking it well of course it <laughs> if you if you listen to the V you probably understand English right let's let's, let's get out of the way um, so let's say you know you're watching something uh, in English right. Um, and then you're, and then you put on, I don't know, French subtitles, right? And the French subtitles is changing certain wording, right? Um, that's gonna, that's that's gonna do something. Um, it might be, even, you might not even notice it, right? But there's a lot of, well, 
we'll get into let's get into the cycles. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm teeing up too too quickly. Um, so this is called Lost in Translation. Uh, the one inch truth about Netflix's subtitle problem. This is via Viz, Viv Grosskop uh, uh, from The Guardian. Uh, let's get into it. Uh, quote, start off with a quote. Uh, Once you overcome the one-inch tool barrier of subtitles, you'll be introduced to so many more uh, amazing films. So said the director Bong Joon-ho as he's accepted his uh, Best Picture Oscar for Parasite in 2020. In an also subtle dig at the dominance of English uh, language content. The success of Netflix's Korean series Squid Game, uh, where contestants compete in deadly playground games to win a cash prize, has proved him more than right. It has become Netflix's biggest hit yet, earning the title of number one show in 90 countries, mostly within days of release and eclipsing the, even the mighty Bridgerton. Uh, but it has also sparked an intense debate about what gets lost in that one-inch block of text and raised uh, questions over whether Netflix is investing enough in creating accurate versions of foreign language scripts. Even before Squid Game, some of Netflix's biggest hits were foreign language series, among them Lupin, Elite, Stark, and Money Heist, um, France, Spain, Germany, and Spain, respectively. Uh, This is partly about global viewers being uh, increasingly open to seeking out the best uh, entertainment experiences. Side note, my mum's been watching, like, Japanese and Far Eastern just shows and films for the past two weeks, and... It's jarring me because she's probably in 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 three weeks she's probably watched more foreign films than I have uh, in my lifetime. So I don't know why she's into that all of a sudden, but here we are. If my mum can do it, then so can you. Um, but it also speaks perhaps uh, to to a sort of secret fantasy uh, that we might understand uh, more in other more in another language than we think. In the same way that everyone who lapped up the Danish series Borg, Borgen or Borgen uh, convinced themselves uh, that they could speak Danish. Uh, just because they could say tac tac stats min- minister, thanks, thanks, Prime Minister, apparently, uh, in a dodgy Scandinavian accent. So viewers turned to French slang YouTube videos to try and decode their best bits from Call My Agent. The optimistic inquiry, uh, can I speak a language fluently just by watching TV, yields 10.4 million Google results. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, however, much we might wish this to be true. Uh, the debate around the subtitles of Squid Game suggests the answer is no. Quote, If you don't understand Korean, you didn't really watch the same show, concludes Young Mi Maya, uh, the New York-based co-host of the podcast Feeling Asian. She released a TikTok video unpicking the flaws in Squid Game subtitles, which has had more than 12 million views. Her gripes, one of the lead female characters, uh, Han Mi Neo, uh, played by Kim Ju Ring, uh, Ri Young, Ri Young, yeah, uh, is represented as more subservient and less intelligent than than in Korean. Uh, the grandmother's footsteps first game, red light green light, is not properly translated either. And the concept of Giganbu, there's two G's in there, so I'm just going to say Giganbu, a link between two equals, which becomes a major plot point, is glossed over. Squid Game's lost in translation moments have even tipped over into accusations of cultural and political bias. Uh, quote, Netflix is notorious for its weak translations um, of Korean dramas, wrote Sharon Kwon in Slate. Uh, alongside many others online, Kwon highlighted the translation of Sir instead of Boss, as used by the Pakistani character Ali Abdul, uh, played by Anu, Anupam Tripathi, uh, to defer to others, uh, arguing that by not using the latter, it lessens the impact of the anti-capitalist message of the series. Vice's Eileen Cho wrote, quote, How will people learn about our culture if the streamer is mistranslating the language, unquote? Great point. Uh, watching the show, 
As a non-Korean speaker, I experienced the stats minister style joy of hearing the words steakhouse, chicken and ice cream and deluding myself momentarily that I could understand some Korean. Then I realised that yes, some of these subtitles did feel awkward. Is Dan a word that someone would say? It popped up uh, repeatedly. Similarly, in the first episode, Seong Ji-hung, played by Lee Jong-jae, uses the word gosh four times which you might believe if saying gosh was something the character was known for, but he doesn't say it again for the rest of the series. The debate around Squid Game subtitles has performed a service, though, in revealing the difference between subtitles, closed captions, and dubbing. Netflix's algorithm sets your choice automatically to dubbing, which is why if you click on any foreign language content, the actors will mysteriously appear on your screen speaking fluent American English that almost but not quite matches their mouth movements. And that is a crime, ladies and gentlemen. That should be a crime. I... I... I, I just can't. I can't do it. I've talked about this before. I think I've mentioned this before on the show. I can't do dub. I, I just can't. Maybe. And I, I've done it, you know, for cartoons back in the day, right? You know, you watch Yu-Gi-Oh! And you're just like, oh, right. You, you, and then you, you think about it and you're just like, okay, they're speaking English. But when you grow up, you realize, oh, that was dubbed, right? And obviously, you're not going to be on Nickelodeon as a 10-year-old or, you know, younger. And you're going to be reading subtitles. Maybe you will. Maybe, maybe, maybe you want that kid. I'd love to be that. I would have loved to be that kid, but um, unfortunately, no. Um, yeah, dubbed it, dubbed it is on that point. But now, fuck, it's so, especially live action, jarring, jarring. Can't do it. It should be illegal to do that. Um, um, uh, just, just, just assume I want that first. That should be a jailable offence. Uh, closed captions were initially devised for deaf viewers that include audio description. Adore slams. Uh, for example, uh, the dialogue used on closed captions is usually a direct transcript of the dubbing script. Subtitles u- use another script entirely. These two are subject to constraints. The translation has to fit across the screen and correspond to a preset reading speed, but they are often seen as more accurate as a more accurate translation than the dubbing script. Subtitling legend and film critic Darcy Paquet, 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 uh, who worked for who worked on Parasite, tweeted, "Quote." I didn't do the subtitles for Squid Game, but note that for this show, there are two sets of English subtitles. There are the real English subtitles, and then and there is the transcription of the dub version, closed captions. Choose the real subtitles, unquote. Uh, viewers who are deaf or hard of hearing, however, don't have the choice between subtitle script and the dubbing script, and many fans are irritated that Netflix seem to be investing more heavily in dubbing than subtitles. Between 2015 and 2020, Netflix invested $700 million over five years in Korean films and television. After the success of Squid Game this year alone, is putting five hundred million dollars. Uh, it is putting five hundred million dollars into Korean content. You would think the question of accurate translation would figure as a priority. Those conversations have been ongoing in the subtitle world for some time. Adopting script translation is always going to be less accurate as it faces two ta- two challenges. First, it must translate a phrase in such a way that it takes exactly the same amount of time to say out loud and out loud in both languages. Second, if there is any opportunity to copy the mouth movements, then you're supposed to take it. Uh, this is why in Squid Game, the Korean honorific oppa was translated, translated as old man in the dubbing, uh, dubbing script, it's babe in the subtitle, uh, subtitle script. In fact, Korean, in Korean, it's a term of respect meaning older brother. Uh, Max Deryagin, I'm, I, I, I 
probably sure there's a better way of saying that, uh, based in Perm, Russia, is a chair of Subtle, the Subtitlers Association, uh, an international group of freelance subtitlers campaigning for the recognition of subtitling as a professional trade as an essential art form. Yeah, yeah, here for that. Yeah, where do I sign on the petition? That's facts. Uh, Derry Yagin um, has been subtitling English to Russian for 11 years and worked on the Russian subtitles for Netflix films Bird Box and Mank. A streamer's, uh, a streamer's series Orange is the New Black uh, and David Lynch's short film What Did Jack Do? also released on Netflix. He watched that after 15 times before trying to translate it. Uh, quote, I was so excited that I could barely sleep. Any complex film is exciting to translate as you need to understand it to understand it to convey it. Oh, don't give... Oh, duh, for Based on what I'm doing right now, trust me. That Yeah, preach. Anyway, um, imagine doing that for Twin Peaks, unquote. Uh, the abundance of content has caused a talent crunch in subtitle in recent years, he says. There are ju- there just aren't enough translators to go around. Quote, Netflix has so much pro- programming that they have changed our industry profoundly, unquote. Derry Yagin uh, explains how differences between different languages uh, present challenges for him and his peers. English, quote, is English is considered compact, like Japanese and Chinese. Arabic and Spanish, not so much, unquote. These differences have huge ramifications if you are trying to fit a translation into few words on screen, while respecting the viewer's reading speed. The Scandinavians are the most experienced at all of this. He says, in, quote, in Scandinavia, they believe in longer subtitles that linger. The reading speed is around 12 characters a second. But in other countries, they want shorter subtitles that prefer, preserve more of the dialogue but retain the gist, unquote. Nope, done like that. Sounds like cutting corners to me. Um, <laughs> subtitles are constantly cutting out filler words, Um, uh, you know. Uh, for example, with closed captions, the constraints are even greater. Quote, you need the translation to fit the lip movements of the actor. Sometimes you have to take big liberties, unquote. Yumi Lee, a deaf Korean uh, American artist, wishes that Netflix and other streamer services would put more effort into monitoring the translation process. Quote, for non-English films, closed captions should be an accessible version of the official subtitle, English subtitle, says Lee. Uh, I did watch the first episode of Squid Game, and it was painful for me to see the differences between the subtitles and closed captions. Both were missing specific information. Streaming services should be cohesive with translation accessibility. We, the deaf viewers, deserve access to the same information as hearing viewers, so we can all share the experience, unquote. Uh, What these debates uh, really reveal, perhaps, is the depth of emotional investment in these binge-worthy shows. Of course, non-native speakers will miss nuances. This can be obvious from from the subtitles themselves, and it only makes you study the actors' performances even harder to make up for it, which is hugely satisfying in Squid Game, as the acting is extraordinarily good. After all, any English speaker would have flinched at the expression uh, used in episode 8. Um, that sounds like spoilers, I don't want to bother. Uh, with series like Squid Game becoming as successful as they are, some may wonder why people care so much about translation. Says Young Me Meyer, uh, quote, I guess you could ask, do people really care about Star Wars? Some people would tell you that they don't care about Star Wars at all, and other people would answer that they've based their entire life on it. If one word was mistranslated, they would be incredibly angry. Oh my gosh, imagine that. That's a great comparison. Imagine that, guys. Imagine if... You, imagine if they got something in Star Wars wrong. Imagine the fucking uproar. Are you serious? Oh gosh, imagine, imagine the the pain from from everyone involved for <laughs> for everyone involved trying to um uh, uh trying to consume Star Wars and you, like you don't care that much. And you know it's a perfect it's a perfect uh, comparison. 
because I don't care about Star Wars that much. But there are plenty of other people that had a complete bitch fit about something of, of like The Last Jedi. And that's fine. Have a bitch fit. It's cool, right? You know, people care about these kind of things, right? But I don't. Um, but when it comes to translating, I feel like, you know, that's of worth. There is of, there is worth to that. And I don't want to be reading something uh, subtitles-wise, right? And I do. I do like my foreign films. Like when I get into a foreign film, I like to be in it, right? And I, and I expect, like, all this time for the subtitles to be on point. But if Netflix have been cutting these corners all this time... I don't know. I don't. I don't know what. What, what do I do? Do I go about just feeling like I haven't watched the film properly? You know. I. You know. I feel like there's some care that should be put in that. Um. You know. People might just. Uh, and I think people uh, when they watch something of Squid Game's nature, you know, which is obviously a, you know, there's from what I've seen, which is a few scenes here and there, you know, it seems like there's nuance, but there's also just like you know shit happening. And people just like it when shit happens. So people might just watch Squid Game and just enjoy the fact that shit happens and how brutal it is, right? But, you know, there's so much more. There's so much more. How many shows do you watch where you appreciate the nuance of it? And then just think about it in broken English. You know what I mean? It's it's, going to be shit. So, yeah. I mean, honestly, fuck Netflix on this front. I thought they were doing something extraordinary, um, being so worldwide right now. Um, and putting so much money into subtitling. I remember listening to a podcast about how Netflix have, you know, tried to make a kind of monopoly on this on this foreign boom and, uh, you know, and putting so much effort into subtitling dubbing. But here we are, a couple of years after that, after I listened to that certain podcast, it was then the Giants, by the way, if you want to go peep it. Um, and now I just realise that they're cutting corners and that's just a... I don't know, it's just a, a bit of a slap in the face to pretty much everyone involved. So we hop into our music segment, and this is all about racism in the music industry! Yay! <laughs> Um, I don't know if you guys remember a couple of episodes, not a couple of episodes, but a lot of episodes ago, um, where there was a documentary uh, starring a Saskilla. Uh, it's in the title if you go have a look, uh, Saskilla. And um, yeah, I remember him talking about you know racism in the music industry. That's kind of what the documentary was about, and how you know black musical black music artists can uh, you know just upgrade themselves uh, business wise. And, um, you know, I had, to, I had some thoughts about that, and uh, I think they were, I, I still hold them, um, but this is more report-based, um, this comes from uh, Mark Savage, uh, BBC Music Correspondent, via, guess what, BBC, <laughs> it's called Racism in the Music Industry, quote, is upfront and personal, so let's jump right in, uh, all the way in. Racism in the music industry is serious, upfront, and personal, says the author of a new report about the experiences of black musicians. Quote, prejudice is here, says Roger Wilson of the Black Lives in Music Initiative. There's nothing stealthy about it, unquote. The report finds that that six in ten black music creators have experienced racism, while 86% say they have faced barriers to their career because of their race. They also earn uh, £299 less per month on average than their white colleagues. 
The report was compiled from the biggest ever survey of black musicians and music industry professionals in the UK. In total, 1,718 people uh, responded describing a range of discriminatory acts and, quote, sometimes hostile work environments, unquote. One reported, quote, having to repeatedly ask the other artist to stop using the N-word. While another faced, uh, quote, jokes about my skin colour, Africa, and persistent questioning about where I really come from, unquote. Their testimonies echo recent revelations from stars like Alexandra Burke, who said she was advised to bleach her skin to look whiter. The singer who won the X Factor in 2008 said she was subsequently told, uh, yeah, subsequently told she would, quote, have to work ten times harder than a white eyes because of the colour of her skin, unquote. Little Mix star Leanne Pinnock, another X Factor winner, uh, said she was made to feel like the band's token black girl and that she often felt invisible at public appearances. Uh, this week, rapper Tiny Tempah said black artists still receive, still receive less re- uh, support than their white counterparts. Quote, Once you're a part of the record label or a system, there, uh, there are lots of complexities within that framework. What your budgets are versus someone else, uh, are versus someone else, he told the PA. Uh, you're a rapper, so this is your budget, you're black, but this is a folk artist who's from, like, Shropshire, and this is their budget, and they haven't sold as many records as you, but we think they're more viable, so we're going to spend more. I would say the internet has made it easier for, for anyone to be an artist, he added, but then, once you have success, and once you're navigating the industry, the world is still a racist place, and people are still racist, unquote. The Black Lives in Music Initiative was established in March this year, promising date, a data-driven mission to amplify and empower black musicians and professionals. The survey is its first major piece of work and will make uncomfortable reading for many in the music industry. It shows that black musicians, quote, are victims of pay disparity and lack of opportunities to progress, uh, Wilson tells the BBC. And we're seeing that black women in particular are the worst off. Well, was. How's that any different from most of the, most of the things in the world, though? Um, the report found 31% of black music creators believe their mental well-being has worsened since starting their music career, rising to 42% of black women. Uh, four in ten said they have been they had been pigeonholed into a genre which is not true to me. Uh, a similar number reported pressure to change their name or appearance to meet record labels' ex- expectations. Just 8% of black creators reported feeling satisfied with the support they received. Three quarters reported otherwise. The findings come despite increasing diversity in the music industry. A recent study by UK Music found the representation of black, Asian and other ethnic, ethnically diverse people aged 16 and 24 was 30.6% up from 259 in 2018. Representation is also at right, uh, also rising at senior levels, although black and ethnic Ethnically diverse people only fill one in five, that's 90.9% specifically, of those positions. Rising star Kima Otung, uh, whose music has featured on Love Island, has been played on BBC Radio 1, says, uh, said she recognised any, uh, many of the stories and experiences depicted in the report. The 27-year-old says she's experienced microaggressions such as reaching out to people and being called pushy or aggressive because I was following up on an email I'd sent two weeks earlier, which is something that's pretty standard, unquote. She has decided to bypass the UK's major labels and release her music independently after hearing horror stories about the industry. Utung says, uh, says she's aware of record labels who say, quote, there are, there's only room for one black eyes on their roster. 
Quote, again, they'll take a chance on one one black R&B artist and that's all they have space for, she says. And it almost feels very experimental in nature. So they get given a very short contract or a very really unfavorable contract. Uh, it's almost as if to say you should feel lucky to be even be here. So take these terms or leave them because there's a whole line of black artists that will take your place immediately, unquote. She hopes that the Black Lives Music Report will lead to a shift in perception. Quote again, it's not about ostracizing anyone or pointing the finger. It's about inviting people to into the conversation and saying, look, this kind of sucks. So what goals can we put in place for the next five years to make really sustainable change, unquote. Uh, apparently the industry wants to change, according to this subtitle. Wilson, a musici- musician and teacher who has worked with James Brown and Dame Shirley Bassey, among others, says the goal of the Black Lives in Music campaign is to hold the music industry to the fantastic, impassioned statements they made during the BLM protests in 2020. In the wake of George Floyd's death, many labels and organizations pledged grants, mentoring, and charitable donations, while the Grammys dropped the marginalizing word urban as a term to describe, uh, describe music by black eyes. Some progress has been made since then, in the form of new initiatives like the PRS Foundation's Power Up, which gives grants, mentoring, and other forms of support uh, to uh, two black artists and executives as they work towards the next stage of their careers. Uh, the record label and publisher BMG also undertook a review of its back catalogue and found, quote, significant differences in the royalty rates given to black artists. It subsequently said it would take, quote, measures to benefit the lowest paid recording artists across all of his catalogues, unquote. Wilson says he remains optimistic about further progress. Uh, quote, I happen to believe that the industry wants to make a change, he says, and as a result, the report is going to, I hope, solicit some honesty in the industry and create a desire to put things right. It will take us time. I don't know what's going to... I don't know that it's going to turn around in the next six months, uh, but I do believe uh, that all these discussions will help to bring about change, unquote. Yeah, I find it I find it funny that um a whole label just looks into their um payroll and it's like, oh, oh, black eyes do oh, oh, how does that happen? Yeah, you know I mean and it actually it actually has um it actually have more in the story and uh, and they have the uh the piece on BMG finding black eyes, uh that may have received lower pay. Um in December eighteenth to December twenty twenty. So <laughs> So yeah, that's that's been that's been enough time. I feel like uh, we can you know go back to BMG and go like, what's going on? Uh, do you did you change anything? You know what I mean, that's, that's that's all it is when it comes to this kind of, these kind of things. It's a matter of keeping on their necks. That's all it is, keeping on their necks. Um, and hopefully you know this report comes out on a yearly basis. Um, I feel like those thing those kind of things are very important, and uh, I think it works. It has worked in other uh, forms. Um, uh, m- albeit marginally, but you know, changes change. Um, but it's the it's the it's the it's the antiquated shit for me that uh, that comes about in this piece. Um, you know, the bleached skin shit. I I find that so. I find that so crazy, right? Um, considering that you know, tanning in some countries are you know genuine industry, and in completely opposite countries, uh, skin bleaching is a billion dollar industry. Um. It's just interesting how people just aren't satisfied <laughs> with what they have, you know. I mean, it's just, um, yeah, it, it's it's cra- it's crazy how polar opposite those things are. Obviously, someone t- over tanning and then someone bleaching their skin, you know. 
both are super unhealthy um you know just for skin wise just just because just so you can you know apparently improve yourself uh and you know body positivity and all that but it's it's obvious that shit's a billion dollar industry and like you know and especially in and obviously the alexandra burke thing while that's while that's over 10 years ago that's still contemporary to me um thinking about that and skin bleaching has not gone away in fact i think it's gone uh i think it's still going uh pile uh in terms of just like um how big of an industry it is uh in terms of just genuine revenue uh so you know clearly that's not going away um and i feel tiny temper's testimony is very interesting considering he has uh he has been more in the background for a lot of people um uh in recent years so clearly he has i feel he has a good stand uh, or a good uh, a good credi- credibility in where uh i stand but then again I did see a trending topic on Twitter where WizKid fans were coming at Tiny Tempar for something. So, maybe not. <laughs> so, I don't, I don't know. But, um, yeah, just the just the, the changes. And the, and then, and, the, and seriously, the, the, there can only be one crap. Are we seriously doing this still? Are we seriously doing this still? Just, I don't know. It is, it is crazy to think about that in 2021, all this shit's still going on. But, um, uh, at the same time, is kind of, uns- it, you know, is kind of unsurprising so um but you know it's a, a good start is always having statistics on the issue and to point to those statistics and say does this look good to you no all right then so what are we going to do about it So hop into sport, and uh, there's a recent podcast that I've uh, recently I haven't started to listen to it yet, but I'm very I've already saved it, and uh, you know I'm gonna give it a spin at some point. Um, and it's by Michael Johnson, uh, track athletics legend, 200-400. You know the deal. If you don't know the deal, please get to know the deal because Jesus Christ, what a G. Um, yeah, it's called Defiance with Michael Johnson, and uh, it looks from the face of it, from what I've read so far, it looks pretty good. Um, but he does this interview on the, via the Guardian uh, by uh, two uh, uh Cario. Um, it's called uh, "You're Going to See Athletes Protest in Centers of Power," and uh, I find it I find it fascinating that Michael Johnson is the uh, is the person to get into the this kind of thing. Uh, the article gets into it, um, which kind of makes my point. So I'll refrain from that and just get into the article itself but yeah it's um it's uh yeah it's michael johnson's a g just straight up g so uh i i just love his voice as well his boss voice anyway let's get into the article michael johnson had had not been had not yet been alive for a year when tommy smith and john carlos stood atop the 1968 olympic podium in mexico city uh, with their glove fist in the air uh in salute of black power a defining moment of activism in sport and one they proceeded uh, with despite knowing it would cost them so much. As he grew up and began an athletics career uh, that would yield four Olympic gold medals, Johnson initially uh, only had a vague familiarity with the game's forefathers. That changed in his late teens as he began to study all the great sprints before him, searching for nuggets of insight he could learn to further himself. His eyes naturally fell on Smith, uh, one of the few sprinters who 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 was special in both 200 and 400 meters. 
Studio Smith's triad pattern naturally led him on to the 1968 Olympics, and what he learned about Smith and Carlos left him in awe of the decisions they made after a, a year after he was born. Quote, it was very interesting for me reading about that, putting myself in their position. What would I uh, would I have would I have had the courage to do what they did? He says, speaking via a Zoom interview, and then hearing about as an athlete myself, knowing the opportunity I had, I was still in college. I was still a college athlete when I was learning about the history, knowing that my dream was to be an Olympic champion. These were Olympic athletes who came home and were punished, couldn't find jobs, were treated with disdain, hate, and getting death threats. Unquote. Those days in the uh, early 80s would mark the start of an ongoing education for Johnson that led him to this point, as on Thursday he releases a documentary-style podcast series called Defiance, in which he holds conversations with numerous athletes and experts to explore both the well-known and more obscure stories of those who make a stand within their sports, from Smith and Carlos to Billie Jean King, Colin Kaepernick and Muhammad Ali. As an athlete, Johnson wasn't, was not known for his activism. He says he grew up in uh, supporting pol- political candidates and participating in protest marches while at college, but that his competitive days came during a period when, apart from specific issue, issue, issues such as uh, boycotting apartheid in South Africa, the intersection between sport and politics was not as clear as uh, then as it is now. In this time of social media and the internet, two decades on from his career, Johnson has come to understand how he can utilise those spaces. Uh, he pinpoints Ahmad Arbery, a man who was killed by three white men while simply jogging in Georgia in February 2020 as a catalyst for him to become more active on social media. Quote, This was the first time I decided to use my social media platform to speak out against that sort of issue and to be in support of him and his family, says Johnson. But I think it's just a different situation now where there are so many opportunities to use your platform that you have to use your platform that you have. Uh, whereas when I was an athlete with no social media, it didn't matter whether it was trying to achieve any sort of justice or trying to build a brand. We had to rely on traditional media, which is much more difficult. Unquote. One of the questions that Johnson says he has always asked himself is why athletes evoke a stronger negative reaction than other celebrities when they are outspoken on human rights and political issues. As an example, he points out the higher number of black athletes in many prominent sports. Quote, the consensus from his interviews is that there are a lot, a lot of people in society that feel that these athletes should count themselves lucky. Because if you're a minority living in America or in the UK and you're a professional athlete making millions of dollars and living a very good life, one, ha- one that has traditionally been reserved for white people, you should be lucky and how dare you speak up? How dare you use this platform that you have been given? How dare you turn on us and use that against us? That's just one example of how we've gotten to this point, unquote. While people in the past knew him as the good, more palatable black person, now he gets people calling in his office to express their displeasure for his own own opinions or else for supporting athletes such as Gwen Berry, the US hammer thrower who protested against the national anthem. Obviously, we talked about that, um, I think, a week before the Olympics, if you want to go peep that episode. Uh, With the new podcast series, he anticipates more criticism uh, to come from those who disagree. But he retains a positive outlook, un- underlining that he feels the future of athlete protests has been glimpsed in how the WNBA professionals have organised to make more, pa- more, more make palpable changes, palpable change with initiatives ranging from stopping players being fined for an anti-violence show in 2016 to Atlanta Dream players helping to elect Raphael Warnock as governor over Republican Kelly Leffler, their former owner. 
quote, they ultimately got their league to drop their fines, he says. They took it one step further and got involved in a political campaign that they w- and they were a success. Oh, I can't say success today. I, I've, said, I've said like three times and I've bottled it three times and had to say it again on this episode. It's, I don't know what, what's, what's, why success is tripping me up here today. But anyway, uh, I think you're going to see protests where athletes are going to the centers of power, whether that be their own league uh, their own employers, or getting directly involved in political campaigns, unquote. Meanwhile, on the field of play, one of the most interesting developments in athletics has been the growing prominence of women sprinters. It was Elaine Thompson-Huron, Shelley Ann Fraser-Price, who stole the attention in Tokyo, and had thousands t- uh, tuning into far less important meets to see them duel, not their male counterparts. And I I completely subscribe to that. I, I was way more into uh, women's side of a- athletics than the men's, um, and it wasn't even close. Uh, continuing on, uh, Johnson says the heightened attention is a result of both historic performances, but also part of a shifting trend, not only athletics. Quote, there's been an imbalance for so long, and I think there's been a recognition by some that there has been that imbalance, he says. If you tell people that men's sports are more interesting, they're going to believe that. But if at some point you start to present the other side, women's sports, more, you find that people are interested in it because now they have exposure to it. I think that's a bit of what we're seeing, unquote. Johnson names Thompson Hurrah, Athing Mo, and Carsten Warholm as the most impressive performers he has seen this year, at a time when 400-meter hurdles races have been as enchanting as any other event, with Warholm and Sidney McLaughlin uh, both running world record times in Tokyo that would not look out of place in a flat form, in flat 400-meter races. He believes it is uh, possible for the event to seize attention at a time when far more prominent ones are not uh, in quite as great shape. Quote, there is nothing to say that Carsten Warholm and his performances in that event, right Benjamin, who's right there with him, can make that event one of the, one of the prominent events, he says. Uh, certainly on the men's side, because right now, the traditional marquee events, men's 100, 200 and 400, those events are not nearly as exciting as men's 400 meter hurdles. And he's not wrong. He, he is not wrong. I mean, I will say 400 flat is still pretty interesting. Um, 100 and 200... I feel like Christian Coleman should have been like the guy to chase, but since he got uh, banned for I forgot how long now, um, maybe two years if I remember correctly, uh, it's kind of just left it out in the open. And as an athletics fan, I'm fine with that, right? There are some good names that I'm watching, but um, the Brit the British contingent disappointed me in Tokyo. Let's be real, um, and uh, you know, and the US have like yeah, you know, they have Ronnie Baker, they have Noah Lyles, right? They have good names. Fred Curley now, um, and and Jamaica's not really been there, uh, not really there at the moment. Um, obviously, Bolt's gone. Johan Blake's a bit of a, you know, still you know, he's there, but not quite there. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of I don't know, it's it's kind of just a little bit dead, just a little bit, you know, lack of energy. Um, but we'll we'll see how it goes next year, maybe when there's like I think like European Commonwealth and the World Championship. So. Uh, Plenty of opportunities there to be exciting. Anyway, uh, the past few years have been a time of great change for Johnson, who unexpectedly suffered a stroke in 2018. Once the fastest man in history above, uh, across both 200 and 400, um, at one point he was unable to walk unaided. The event itself was shocking and recovery was meant to be me- mentally arduous, uh, but he says he now enjoys the same life he lived before the stroke. He credits being an athlete as an enormous advantage in his recovery. Rather than his return to form, he takes more fulfillment uh, from how he has helped others who have suffered strokes since. Quote, it's been very rewarding to try help others, uh, trying to help others as they go through the same process, but who don't have the benefit of having been an athlete and understanding those marginal gains. How important it is to stay motivated every day, he says. 
and then also trying to bring awareness to people so that they can hopefully prevent a stroke, unquote. Uh, over the 20 years since Johnson became an Olympic gold medalist for the f- final time at 33 years old, he has transition- transitioned gracefully into retirement, becoming a popular and insightful broadcaster while he's found satisfaction in a variety of avenues. He says he remains as goal-driven as he was an athlete, but now those efforts are channeled into businesses uh, as well as other exploits such as defiance. Quote, at this point, as I'm now into my 50s, he says, laughing, <laughs> laughing, uh, just taking every day as it comes and trying to balance it a bit more, as opposed to years ago when I was an athlete and focused on what next? Uh, what's next? What's the next thing to conquer? A little more balanced now, unquote. Yeah, man, I, I love me some Michael Johnson, man. I, I think he's just a straight-up dude. Um, a person I'd love to meet, just in general. Um, and yeah, I can't wait to beat the podcast, man, because I think it's like 10 parts. I think I, I saw a clip of John Amici there as well. Um, I recently listened to his, uh, his audiobook, uh, uh uh, the Promise of Giants, and that was very fascinating, as it uh, basically talks about leadership and you know going about things as a giant. As a and it makes sense because he is literally a giant. He's I think he's like seven feet. So um, you know it's it's a very fascinating just uh, angle to go about it. Um, and yeah, Michael Johnson is an absolute G man. I love him. Like you know just commentating uh, when he does BBC Athletics. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think he's a real smart dude, real knowledgeable dude. Um, and clearly uh, reading the room and uh, uh, is is on that forefront of just, you know, bringing... Because every time he talks, even on something like Twitter, you know, if he says something proper, like when he said, uh, when he was talking about Christian Coleman, like people listened, like people listened in athletic space and I love that. I love those talismans uh, we have in, you know, not just athletics, but other sports that just, um, you know, choose to speak the right thing and speak truth to power. I'm here for that. Um, so shout out to Michael Johnson, shout out to all those people that do the same. And uh, yeah, man, Defiance, if you're on Audible, um, I think you can get that for free. Uh, be like me, go go give that a, go give that a quick spin, because I'm definitely going to do that at some point. So now we finish off with life, and uh, this is all about rage. Um, so there's a book coming out uh, by Miss uh, Maisha Cherry. Um, she is an assistant prof- uh, professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside, um, and is the author of the forthcoming books I mentioned, The Case for Rage, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. Now, as somebody, you know, that um, tries his best not to get pissed off every single day, um, because, you know, there is always, for me personally, there was always something to be angry about. There was always something to be pissed off about. So sometimes you have to delegate, you know what I mean? Sometimes you have to just, you see something and you're just like, I'm going to keep it moving. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, you know, you have to do that. You have to do that. Um, otherwise you just, you know, spend every day on Twitter or wherever you go, uh, for, you know, your daily fix of social media bullshit. Um, and just, you know, or you're watching the news, right? And you, know, you just try your best to not, like, throw something at the screen as soon as, you know, Pretty Patel comes on screen, right? You know, I, f- I feel like we can all we can all uh, agree on that. Um, but this is making a case for rage, um, literally, on the, on the you know, as a, uh, in some way. So uh, isn't, I think this is an excerpt from her book, Via the Atlantic. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess, I guess it's a, let's just say it's a sneak peek, a little taste of what she's going on about. Um, uh, so let's jump right in on this front. 
Uh, when we think of love, we recognize its varieties. Uh, philia, brotherly love. Eros, romantic love. Agape, universal love. Conditional and, un- un- conditional and unconditional love. Requited and unrequited love. Love for virtue and love for vice. Our awareness of these difficult, uh, different kinds of love not only allows us to perceive its varied forms, it also gives us adequate information to approve or disapprove of a particular type. When we talk about anger, by contrast, we tend to paint it in broad strokes, generalizing it as though it were one destructive thing. But there are many kinds of anger. As a philosopher and anti-racist scholar, um, I study anger through the lens of political injustice, and I have sorted political rage into five categories. The first four are, at best, unproductive and, at worst, dangerous. But the fifth variety can be useful and lead to positive change. So the first one is called rogue rage, um, is anger at injustice. Although the target of the injustice is not necessarily the personal institution that caused it, a person with rogue rage blames almost everyone for his for his unjust experiences. The former neo-Nazi Christian Piccolini, uh, Picciolini, Picciolini, there's an eye in the middle, uh, who now works for for two fight extremism, was a rogue rager before he changed his ways. Wipe rage, W I like butt wipe, <laughs> is felt by people. Uh, who perceive injustice at the hands of a specific group or groups and aim to eliminate those people. White ragers may experience economic hardship, uh, hardship, or they may feel ignored by a government that is supposed to represent and serve them. You will write protesters who descended on Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017 with their anti-Semitic and anti-black chants of you will not replace us, voicing a belief that white people are on the verge of extinction were expressing white rage. The third one is resentment. Resentment. It's not resentment. It's, it's got a T in it, so I'm just like, tri- it trips me up. Resentiment rage. There you go. May sound strange at first, perhaps even redundant. Oh, here we go. I love it. The French resentiment, or ressenti- is it ressentiment? <laughs> Can be translated as... Oh, it's, it's literally translated as resentment. Why didn't you just... <laughs> Although it's meaning from French uh, more closely reflects my intent here. Making me making me trip up on words for no fucking reason. Anyway, continuing on, uh, resentment rage uh, is aimed uh, aimed at a racial group in power and is expressed by those without power. It is likely to be directed at all members of the powerful group. For example, an indigenous person who is angry at all white people in America. People with resentment rage are reactive. They see themselves as subjects who are acted upon. Uh, fourth one is narcissistic rage. Is not my, is not my term. Bell Hooks uh, coined the phrase in a 1995 book, Killing Rage. Um, I think there's a there's a Chuck D uh, there's a Chuck D lyric about that. That's good. Just realised that. Um, she cites black ath- black elites as a group that sometimes, <coughs> excuse me, has narcissistic rage, which arises from a sense of in- individual exceptionalism, not outrage at systemic injustice. Narcissistic ragers are angry because although they have worked hard and risen through the ranks gaining as much social capital and even acceptance by some white people, the oppressive powers refuse to make a distinction between them and the other members of the oppressed group. These four types of rage can produce harmful effects in the world. They can obstruct racial justice and even perpetuate injustice. Uh, But there's another kind of political rage that stands out from the rest. I call it Laudian rage, and it is our best hope. Laudian rage contrasts with the other types of rage in stark ways. I named it after the black feminist scholar and poet Audre Lorde. Um, 
uh, based on my reading of her essays on anger and race. Uh, Laudian rage uh, plays an important role in the anti-racist struggle and is not necessarily destructive. Law defines racism as, quote, the belief in the inherent superiority of one race over all others and thereby the right to dominance manifest and implied, unquote. The targets of Laudian rage are those who are complicit in and perpetrators of racism and racial injustice. This type of anger is, for example, directed at racist actions, racist attitudes, and presumptions that arise out of those attitudes. These needn't come from powerful, faraway forces. These attitudes and actions can and often do come from people who, prof- who profess solidarity with the racially marginalised. The goal of Lordian Rage is to absorb anger and use it for energy. As the title of Lord's influential essay, The Uses of Anger, suggests, anger has its benefits. Lordian Rage is useful if it is focused uh, with precision and translated into needed action. It is metabolised anger. Uh, quote, the virtuous channeling of the power and energy of anger without the desire to harm or pass pain, unquote, writes the scholar Emily McRae. It is a call to, quote, find justice and respect the reality of one's anger without being destroyed by it, unquote. I have always wondered what made freedom fighters like Sojourner Truth and Ida B. Wells, born both as slaves, stand up to oppressive racist and sexist systems. Uh, as black women, they were doubly oppressed, but they were but were not afraid to speak truth to power. Well, accounts for this audacity, a belief in justice, no doubt, and confidence in themselves, and a sense of optimism that they would a- be able to succeed. Ha, got it. Uh, to despite the risks and challenges they faced, but they also channeled Laudian rage, as did Martin Luther King Jr., who, while locked up in Alabama in '63 responded to his critics and unjust arrest with productive anger, writing his famous letter from Birmingham jail. Uh, the perspective that informs Lordian rage is, as Lord put it, quote, I am not free while any other is unfree, unquote. Freedom is not exclusive, it is inclusive. Those who share this view embrace the unfree, whose, quote, shackles are different from our own, unquote. Not just selected members of a particular group, uh, Lord was not only uh, concerned about justice for well-educated black women like herself, she was also concerned about the poor and those in developing nations, and all uh, and who all who live under the uh, under the conditions that shape and support white supremacy. This inclusive perspective helps us see that if we fail to quote recognize them as other faces of ourselves unquote, then we are contributing not only to their oppression but also to our own. At this point, you might be thinking, this sounds difficult. I understand your concern. Lordian rage might not seem like an emotion to which we're naturally given, and we might think that becoming the kind of person who could use it productively would be hard work. Is Lordian rage an exclusive state of mind that only a few noble souls are capable of achieving? Thankfully, the answer is no. You might think that what we are naturally given to, when we are angry at a sibling, for example, is an urge to lash out to them. And any opposing reaction to this natural desire uh, to retaliate might seem superhuman or super virtuous. However, this kind of thinking stems from a bro- from a broad strokes conception of anger, which leads us astray. I can have destruct I can have a destructive kind of anger directed at my brother and a constructive kind of anger directed at racists. Both kinds of anger can coexist in me. I contain multitudes. Uh, the presence of the former shows that I am I am not perfect, but it doesn't cancel out the possibility of Lordian rage. Uh, directed at racists in the pursuit of a more just society. Lordian rage requires us to have moral sensitivity and moral imagination, but not necessarily moral excellence. 
it is within reach. And that's the entire uh, little sneak peek, I guess, um, and just um, yeah, a uh, little, little breakdown of, uh, I guess, what the whole book is about. Um, and I, I, I like she, I like she's given it a word. I like she's given it a term, Lordean rage. Um, I'm definitely gonna throw that in the titling um, of this episode. Um, and I feel like it's something that, because I feel like I've heard this kind of, you know, um, way of thinking, you know, before. Um, because it's not just you know if you if you just have rage as a let's just say right you have a, a rage for um a black as a as a black person right um and you're you know pissed off for uh, about you know just things that happen to black people oppression etc etc right that's all well and good um but you know to dismantle something as large as whiteness, white supremacy, etc., etc., you know, all these systems that have been ingrained um, into a lot of the world, right? Um, in order to dismantle that, um, you need to, well, you, let's use my, let's use my, my spe- let's use my uh, favorite term, zoom out. You have to zoom out and think about more than just yourself, more than just your uh, people that look like you, uh, or people that feel like you, you know, um, you have to have some compassion to other people that are suffering, right, um, and it's hard, and, and you know, it's, it's kind of weird in human nature to just, like, think about that, but it's worthy, it's worthy, because if you, if you, if you feel, and it's not even like you have to, you know, go to, I don't know, um, gay pride parades, right, it's not, for example, right, it's not like, that's not, that's not the point here, but, um, if you're seeing, for example, let's take it to gender, right, let's take it to, let's take it to the, um, well, is it gender or sex, I I forget the, I forget which is which, um, let's take it, let's just take it to, um, okay, the women that have been dying, uh, at hands of the police, or, yeah, just people, or women that have been dying at the hands of men, uh, as as we've covered here on the show a couple of times in the past few months, right? Um, as men, as a man, you have to be angry about that. You should be angry about that, right? But a lot of us feel, I don't know, um, oh, as long as I ain't my mum. And obviously we don't say that, right? As long as, as long as we don't say, you know, we don't say outright, oh, it's, oh, it's not my mum, so I don't care. It's not my sister, so I don't care. So my girlfriend, so I don't care. Wife, you know, daughter, right? So I don't care. But you have to, right? You have to. Um, if you care for your kids' education, then you basically sh- you're basically caring for all kids' education, right? But obviously, we paint it as you know, oh, it's just my kids' education. But you're talking about the whole school. You're talking about the whole curriculum, right? That's what I mean when I talk about education. I'm not talking about just, you know, what white kids need to learn. I'm talking about what everyone needs to learn. Everyone needs to learn about South Asian history. Everyone needs to learn about Black Caribbean and Black African history in U- in UK schools. I've been pushing that, right? I, I've, you know, I'll die on that hill. And I guarantee you that if that, if that when, when and if that happens, uh, you know, future generations will be so much better for it. Society anyway. Um... But yeah, Lordean rage. I'm gonna try and I'm gonna try and uh, I'm gonna try and embrace that term. 
I think that should be I think that should be a, a, new, a new term for us to to use um and uh, obviously in and obviously understand the other four you know um I feel like once we understand the other four cuz even when the, when, they, when even when she was describing the four I was just like yeah I've had that before I've had that before tick 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 you know what I mean um it's so easy it's so easy to dip in them it's so easy um just as humans it's very easy and like she said you know you you can have them um you know you, you can you can want to slap your sister, I guess, or slap your brother, right? Slap your sibling uh, for the for you know the fact they tripped you up or whatever, and you just like you know give a tomp on the head, um, you know whatever. But uh, you know just uh, wanting to replace everyone, replace you know a whole race is a you know bit of a step up. Um, but anyway, Lordian rage. Let's, let's let's get into that. Let's let's embrace that and uh, think about that some more. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, we shall leave it there. From the Fifth End Podcast Network, I have a Charlie Taylor. This has been what's good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. You can find his link in the full show notes. Thanks to Joel Breckers for the bit to use the track. You can also find their uh, link in the full show notes. Thanks to Nappy High for the ability to use Charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.